Hello and welcome to Resourceful, stories from the site, proudly brought to you by Resources Unearthed. At Resources Unearthed, we help executives, professionals and business owners in mining and resources to be successful both personally and professionally. We've created this podcast to help you in your employment or business, and we'll be chatting to people who have a proven track record of success in the industry. Thanks for joining us. As Chief Geoscientist at BHP and Asset President at Olympic Dam, our guest in this episode is certainly one with great insight and experience. Regarded as a champion of diversity and inclusion within the industry, Laura Tyler is passionate about her work, which has been recognised through numerous awards. Originating from England, Laura began her career in civil engineering after graduating with degrees in geology and mining engineering. Married to a fellow scientist, she and her husband Duncan made the bold move to Mount Isa, which was the first of many moves for their family. Laura reflects on some of the challenges she has faced being a woman in the mining and resources industry and how she stepped into leadership roles. Whilst the industry has made great progress in the area of diversity, Laura is working to see more improvement as she develops fundamental policies in HR within BHP and works closely with BHP's JASPER program. With years of experience across numerous fields, the wisdom and understanding gained throughout Laura's career are immeasurable. You'll hear about Laura's personal reflections and the principles she has lived by to achieve the success she has obtained in her career and family life. Hi, my name's Brett Cribb, Managing Director and Founder of Resources Unearthed, and welcome to Resourceful Stories from the Site. Today, we're a little bit different in that we're through a Zoom podcast with the latest COVID going on, but I'm joined by Laura Tyler. I've known Laura for over 25 years, during which time she's progressed through various leadership positions from Mount Isa, where we got to know each other, through remote sites around the world and Australia, and since 2005 with BHP at multiple sites, to where she is now as Asset President of Olympic Dam and Chief Geoscientist at BHP. As we can all imagine, to say that that role would be challenging would be a significant understatement. I'm also interested in hearing about Laura's experience in being part of the executive leadership team at BHP. I'm looking forward to hearing many of these stories from the site from Laura. So wherever you are, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Resourceful. Well, welcome, Laura, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Brett. To begin with, could you tell us how and where you started in the geology, mining and resources industry? Where I started was in the UK. So I'm originally from the north of England, close to the coal fields, the Lancashire coal fields. And I studied geology at university, starting in civil engineering. My husband and I moved to Australia back in the mid-1990s when we went to Mount Isa, um, which was a big change to go from uh, kind of cold and wet London which is where we were living at the time, to um, hot and dry Mount Isa. I think we didn't see rain for about eight months after we arrived, which was a real novelty for me coming from the UK. And then since then, we have moved around, taken advantage of, of an amazing industry and the opportunities that have been afforded us to, to work in different places and to see different things. And I've been really privileged as a geologist to work in some of the most iconic and amazing all bodies um, from around the world in, in a variety of different um, commodities. You initially moved from the UK and out to Mount Isa, as you said, so that was a big change. 
along with you know many others in both of yours and Duncan's lives. Can you talk about you know your experience moving between countries as you've done and, and the decisions you made and how you came about those decisions each time you moved? To me, life is an adventure. Um, you only get one go at it. And so it, it is around how do you look at the opportunities for what they are, what they can give you. And we've turned things down as much as we've taken said yes to things. I think the move from the UK to Australia, once you've made that international move, and you've discovered that you can survive on the other side of it, then after that, it's relatively simple to move again. And we moved through three or four different states within Australia before we then moved over to Canada, back to the UK for a while, then back to Australia. So I always kind of joke we're on our second time around the world. Uh, We actually have some furniture that we first moved to Australia with that's kind of come with us all the way around, and we're still dragging it about the world with us. So the decisions are relatively easy I think if you consider the pros and cons what's the opportunity on the other side and then um, you know once you've done it once it's it's a tick and flick exercise around insurance and house buying and all of those kinds of moving selling the car buying a car Um, it's a little bit you know you just get organized and you you get to know what to do yep I think I can I can say with the experience of dealing with you over a long period of time and Duncan (laughs) that uh, you both are very organized so (laughs) Well, we are planners by trade. Well That's right. <laughs> so you get you get two scientists or a scientist and an engineer in a relationship. Everything is planned out. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. It's very well planned, I must say. But it's um, it's interesting. I think you made the comment about treating life as an experience, and uh, quite a few of our participants in these podcasts have said this much the same thing. So something a lot of people could take on board, I guess. Yes, I think one of the things that Duncan and I have always done, I mean, I think the other challenge is having two professionals in the same relationship and both of us wanting to have a career is how you manage that is sometimes a bit more tense, maybe like those moves. When we make those moves, somebody has to, it was often was me in the early stages would say, would, would actually resign from my job. And you take a punt that you're going to get a job at the other end and that you're going to work to get a job. Obviously, it's all around how do you communicate? How do you have the discussion you know, as a couple and decide what's the right thing to do? And, and Duncan and I always joke, it's we do what's best for Tyler Inc. So we treat it almost like a company decision. What's the right decision for us to make as a family unit? You know, And obviously now we've got three kids in tow as well. And so that's often been what we've done. And, and the latter half of, I guess, of our careers, it's been my career that's moved us around. So it's been trade-offs all the way through. And I think recognizing that both parties have to make trade-offs is important. That's been important for us. Is there something you would have done differently or something you did well that you'd say? If we look upon it, like which has been a real positive move, particularly when we look back. So there's the two, I guess, the big moves that we've made, one which was around moving to Australia. That was a big move. You know, I never saw my grandparents again after that. They both died the first sort of 18 months after we'd left there's always a downside to some of these things. So so I think that move was probably the bravest move that we made. I was probably in my 20s, so maybe I was just realised what I was actually doing. But then I think the other big move that we made was when we moved from Canada. So my kids were all Australian born, but they had really grown up in Canada for about seven or eight years. So that next move was the hardest one for us all as a family, because that was, they were, you know, sort of 10, 8, 
And so for them, they were suddenly, they were leaving friends behind. It was when they were two or three, they didn't really have friends to leave behind in that way. They really struggled with that kind of first big international move. So if I go back and look at it, then I think I probably would have done that move slightly differently, would have taken more time as a family to settle before getting into work. But that's really the only thing when I look back, what would I have done differently? What do I think has been amazing is the fact that we've grabbed the opportunity and have worked at, I've worked at plus 40, I've worked at minus 40, I've worked under the Northern Lights and I've worked in Outback Australia and, and everything in between. And it's been in a journey that my family's come on. And so my kids see the world as a very small place or a very interesting place because they have lived under all those conditions as well. So it makes their lives interesting as well. Yeah, they're no doubt like uh, you and I, when we go to a place like I was up, I think I said in the last podcast, I was up at Acardi, Yellowknife, I should say, not not at Acardi, visiting Richard up there, who we both know quite well. And uh, we were in one of the little shops there and someone walks in and they're from Australia coming to look and investigate whether they're going to work at the mine over there. And so they got the Richard positive spiel about working and <laughs> taking the big leap of faith. <laughs> <laughs> you have to. It is that leap of faith. And, and I think people just need to embrace that it's going to be different on the other end, but different isn't always bad. Different is often, is often good. It, it, it expands your mind and makes you think about different things. And as I said, as a geologist, some of the ore bodies I've worked have been amazing. So, so that as well as I can look back and go, you know, look at the ore bodies I stud in the middle of and worked and, and mined. It's been amazing. Yeah, and the kids are going to be able to look back on some of that and also see they'll be somewhere in the world and they'll run into someone that they've met that they've been with over the years, you know? Yeah, Meredith was in school and they were going through all of the different, you know, when they go through all the different kind of environmental conditions around the world and the different, you have temperate climates and you have the boreal forests. She said, I'd lived in about half of the different places that (laughs) they were talking about. So it was kind of quite interesting. Could you provide us some insight into your experience being a, a woman in mining when you first came to Mount Isa in 95? and further on into your career when you started moving into leadership roles? Yeah, so I often get the woman in mining question. When we first came to Mount Isa in 95 and I got work at the Mount Isa Copper Mine or X41, um, which is where obviously Brett was already, you were already working. I think I was one of six women at the time in the whole of the mine. So um, everyone knew, and with my accent as well, as soon as I went on the radio, everyone knew who I was. (laughs) <laughs> was that was on the radio and I couldn't <laughs> and I couldn't identify anyone on the other because they all just sounded Australian to me it was an interesting experience I have to say you know generally when I look back on it at times it was probably a little bit challenging you know um, we didn't have the facilities that we have these days for women in working places I know we still need to improve them but we really didn't have any at all you know clothing didn't fit we had to scrimmage around to find boots that were small enough and all of those sorts of things but I think by having women start in those environments sort of 30 years ago 25 years ago we've steadily seen an improvement and I think to be honest diversity is is here to stay. It's got a momentum now that is amazing. I was, when I was asset president at Cannington, I went to site and then went into the women's change room at Cannington and I couldn't find anywhere to put my gear down in order to get changed because there were so many women in the room. And this was a decent sized change room. And I just started, was like ready to burst into tears on the spot because it's taken 
sort of like 20 plus years to get to that point where I actually can walk into a change room and not be able to find space. Whereas it's probably a common enough occurrence for most men who are in the mining industry, but for women to have enough numbers there that, that you actually, you know, can fill a change room is really quite moving. And, and, I, and I look at the progress that we've made as an industry to try to embrace diversity and we're getting there. There's still pockets where we could get better. It has been a struggle at times. When I think about moving into leadership, I have been told I've only got jobs because I'm a woman. I have been told by people that they don't want to work for a woman before. And some of those things, you can either take them two ways. You can let them rock you back or you can use them for the power of good to kind of like um, increase your resilience and and determination to, to actually succeed, which is how I kind of took it. And generally, I've had positive commentary from that. And, and I think my leadership style does involve a lot of push for empathy and what is fair for people and to be very people-centric. So I'm hopeful that, that people get that my leadership style, while it may not be as um, aggressive as some of my male colleagues that I've worked with over the years, but generally um, we can achieve the same results and do it in a way that is collaborative and, and acknowledges the power of the team to deliver results as opposed to the individual. And I think that's what, that's what we see these days is, is an increasingly powerful way of leading. So it's been good. Yeah. You're regarded as a champion of diversity and inclusion within the mining and resources industry. Can you tell us more about when you first started working in that space or being recognised in that space, what progress or changes you've affected or witnessed? And you've mentioned some of them already to us, but... I guess, what got your interest and what led to that? So it's nice of you to say that I'm a champion of diversity and inclusion. I've never felt like that. I've just been doing a job that I really enjoy. When you're doing something that you enjoy, you can be passionate about it. And then I do look different to most of the people that I've worked alongside for many years. Um, And so having to make sure that we can encourage more diversity has been important to me. I've been given various awards and it's always made me smile. And then how do you use that kind of profile in order to continue to increase the profile of other women that are coming through and encourage people to see that they can make a difference if they come into this industry? I guess one of the realizations I came to was that there's an increasing number of young women coming through who are very powerful, very passionate. And so over the last couple of years, I have stepped back a little bit and I've allowed other women to come through and and be very passionate. But what I have done, which has been really eye-opening for me, is I'm the executive sponsor for Jasper within BHP. Now, Jasper is the BHP LGBT plus and allies kind of internal group. We work to look at how do we improve the rights, the inclusion, the well-being of LGBT plus people in our community and in, in the BHP family. And that has really given me an insight into something that is not my lived experience. So the women in mining was always my lived experience. And I couldn't understand why men couldn't see the issue, but it was not their lived experience. That's something that's really opened my eyes by working with Jasper is trying to understand what is the lived experience of someone who is lesbian, gay, queer, uh, you know, whatever piece of, of that community they're a part of? What their lived experience is, is not my lived experience. To learn to try to see it more from that other side, to stand even further into other people's shoes and try to understand it. 
has given me a certain, I guess, understanding of how hard it has been over the last 25 years for the guys that I'm interacting with. I'm going, but I just need a toilet that works for them to be like, what are you talking about? There's lots of toilets that work. So, so I have a little bit more sympathy. It doesn't mean that I kind of like let up on my expectations of what they will come and, and join with. But maybe it's like now how I think about how do we phrase it? How do we engage? is to how do we really uh, recognize that we have to introduce them to what is our lived experience more in order for them to be able to engage better and, and get, you know, to really understand what it feels like. Um, so I think it's made me a better leader. So the executive sponsor piece looks at policy through to like the day-to-day experiences and what can we do to, to shift BHP to be increasingly inclusive and diverse across the whole range of different pieces. And so now I'm stepping back into the women in mining piece a little bit within BH, particularly within BHP around our um, sexual harassment and assault risks that we have in many of our camps and it's across the globe. So it's, it's just a part of, you know, societal expectations and our own expectations shifting on what people should have to live with. But it's allowed me to come into it now with a different context of what is the lived experience of people. And women have a very different lived experience of of assault risk than men do. So how do you make sure that that everyone is understanding what that different experience is before we just set an expectation that everything's going to change? It's probably quite a complex way to answer the question, but I think it's it's something that has evolved, you know, with me over time as I've kind of stepped in and out and, and as through leadership, I've had to deal with it at different levels from the immediacy at Mount Isa when we actually needed a change room that we could fit in through to now where I'm kind of thinking quite hard about what policies and what's the specific wording in some of our fundamental policies that sit behind the HR um, department in, in BHP to how do we actually then affect that change and that inclusive leadership beyond just women in mining to include LGBT plus, to include ageism, all of those different pieces. How do we make sure that we actually are doing that as an industry and leaning into that. It's been an evolving journey, I guess, over the last 30 years. Yes, it's, uh, there's no doubt there's plenty of evolution and change over time. Yeah, and yeah. It, and That's... some of it doesn't happen in big leaps, it just happens in small ways all the way. Yeah, it's been good. It's I... the 30 years. I guess just the one, you know, well, before we move off, this is a topic. One of the pieces when I look at, where as I've championed diversity and inclusion from a women in mining perspective, is the importance of everyone having financial independence. So for me, one of the things that's driven my desire to stay in the workplace and to continue working after I'd had three kids and and how do we manage that is that making sure that I have financial independence. And I brought up my children to believe in having their own financial independence. And I do think it is something for me that everybody should have so that they can make the best choices for them as individuals at any point in their in their life and you don't get that if you are not able to be independent it gives you a a security that cannot be gained any other way so i guess that's another big one for me that i've always continued to push and when i talk at women in mining events and they ask me what are the three things that i think are important then the inclusion and and being safe but financial independence is something that i always talk to maintaining particularly young women who too easily give it away it's an important thing and it's a thing that enables you to take choices, doesn't it? As you said, it's sort of probably one of the prime things that uh, enabled me to make the choice I made 20 years ago to leave Mount Isa and 
start up a business. So, and I've seen it many times over and over through my career doing what I do now is that uh, that gives people freedom to make choices. Yep, and to live your life you where you want to. Yeah, yeah, that's it. As you said, mo- moving on to the next couple of topics, you've worked in some le- in plenty of leadership positions within BHP for some time now, and you know on our theme of stories from the site. Can you talk about some of the challenges that these positions have faced you with, especially any that were quite unexpected and how you manage them? I think the biggest shift was going from technical leadership to line leadership. That step from when you're a kind of a superintendent or a small manager position, when you only have a few people, you know everybody by name, you know who their kids are, you know, because you've got a relatively small team. So then when you go to a headcount, which means you, there's no way you can even remember everybody's name, let alone know who their wives are or how many kids they've got, and that your ability to lead needs to become bigger and more inspiring without necessarily always being able to have a personal relationship with each individual that you're working through. So you can't develop personal wise. You have to be able to develop that wider how are we going to achieve what we're going to achieve? And so, so for me, that was a, I mean, you, know, you always kind of like move up in, in size, but the reach is a point. It's like a tipping point that you tip over where you go from having those small teams to those big teams and how in smaller teams, you can be easily consultative. You could be collaborative. You can solve problems together in the bigger teams. You become more remote. You don't necessarily have detailed technical knowledge of everything that you are managing. If I look at what I manage now, I manage through from exploration, greenfields, exploration, drilling through to putting, you know, product on a ship and within that sit smelters, refineries, Essex, underground mine, exploration drilling, like the whole gamut, mills. You can't be an expert in all of those things. So learning how to manage that next level, that was the biggest challenge for me and that recognition that I wouldn't be a technical expert in everything. Because as you know, I spent like the first 15 years of my career pretty much as a technical mine planning expert working in a range of different operations but that was my fundamental skill set and then to go from that to managing a wide range of people bhp was where i made that biggest step that change and i think it was an interesting challenge for me because i like to be collaborative so how do i get that um, so which means then i have to spend a lot more time thinking about the different channels that I'm going to use, whether it be town halls, pre-start meetings, then how do you use emails effectively? Hardly anyone reads their emails. I'm quite sure I'm on auto-delete for most of my my team. But, you know, diagonal slices with operations so that I can bypass the filtering of managers, superintendents, general managers and supervisors and actually talk to people in a safe space and find out what they really think and what they really hear. Um, I guess the silver lining of the COVID-19 piece has been the increased use of digital town halls. And I've actually discovered now that our systems will hold on to the ability for me to talk to hundreds of people across Olympic Dam by a digital platform and have them ask questions so I can get into their ears without having to actually stand up in front of them in town lots of separate town halls so that is uh, i guess is a bit of a, a powerful learning that our systems can actually do that so there's some of these things we're looking at how do we continue to do them because you know that means that 
we can get those messages of, of whatever it might be. Yeah, you might have a, uh, a podcast or something going on while one of those guys that was driving the loader underground listening to you on the radio, well, they listen to you on the podcast. Go. <laughs> exactly. Well, because then we video. So then when we do the safety brief, so we do these safe, now we do it for like half an hour. They make it into a 20 minute podcast and they put it out. So the guys can do exactly that. Then they can listen to me do my spiel plus the Q and A's that have come in. And they can listen to it anywhere. So they can have them, they can chop it up and do it over two or three pre-starts or they can give it to them in a truck or, yeah, it's good. So one other question I haven't asked anyone before, but this is something different. You know, as someone in a, who's been in a high-level position of an industry-leading company for quite some time now, can you comment on any trends or future directions you see in the industry and see the industry heading in ways or areas that are of interest to you, you know? So I think if you'd asked me this question three or four months ago, it probably would have been a different answer. But given kind of where we're sitting now, I think there's a different element of, um, I guess, almost localization that is now we have to sort of think about and consider. I mean, as I said before, I think diversification of our workforce is almost unstoppable now. Everyone talks around you know, elimination of manual tasks through automation, you know, big data and all of those. I think that is almost like a given. It will continue to move down those tracks. And and mining moves fast and slow. In some places it moves quickly and other places it seems to take 25 years, 30 years before we actually make a shift. But I think if I reflect on where we are now and what we're going to be working like in the future, I'm challenged with how do I make sure that we are bringing in, I guess, the youth view into the future of work a lot more. There's a, um, a real disparity between what us oldies, yeah, that's you and me, Brett, what us oldies um, think about the world and the workplace. And then assumption that everything will just pick up and carry on as it, as it did before to what are the youth actually saying around how they think work should be into the future. So what I am curious around is, is how do we get those young voices loudly in the conversation around what is the future of work and how are we going to think about it? What are the hours that will work? How will we, how, where will people live? You know, how will we focus on the right types of training to give people in the future years? And how are we going to manage a potential virus that can pop up and pop down and limit travel, you know, potentially for the next few years. Um, and how are we going to localize our workforces? And that doesn't mean everyone living next door to the mine, like in the old days, but how do we think about it from a state perspective? How are we, you know, working through with our respective kind of local states to think about the training and the attractiveness of those states for people to come and live in? particularly obviously focused on Olympic Dam at this point. I think the other piece, I guess we just go and sit in the technical space just for a moment. The other things that I think we need to be focused on and we're going to be pretty fascinating, I'm just looking up at my board, future-based risks, water and land access and right to mine. They're, I guess, two big things that are looming large that we really need to focus on is from a technical perspective um, and a community perspective because that's where those things come together so the right to access which we see being limited in a lot of places and um, access to water and how as an industry we need to get better at managing those relationships because everyone will see water as more important into the future 
Yeah, it certainly would have presented some challenges around operations. And I know in speaking to quite a few of our, our clients around the world that, you know, having people fly in from one state or one country to another is pretty difficult, if not impossible, to achieve at the moment. And how you manage that into the future would be will be quite challenging. Yep. Well, we're just working through that. The scientist comes out to me here. How do we make sure we base our decisions on the science, but recognising that it's people again. It's a humanitarian issue that we're dealing with and people aren't always logical when it comes to their health and stuff. So having that empathy is important, but we've got to base our results on science, how we attack this. So Laura, could you tell us maybe uh, about a difficult or interesting time in your career, including any advice you'd pass on to your younger self? Oh, difficult or interesting time. I've had lots of difficult and interesting times in my career. So, um, but I thought what was what was more interesting was the what advice would I pass on to my younger self? Because I regularly get asked that question, and I think it's something that kind of lets you explore a little bit around, you know, what have you held close over the years, or what's been important to you over the years, and when you look back, what could you have done differently? So, if I think about what are the things I would tell my younger self, it's four pieces. One, stay curious. It will serve you well, and it has done. Like I continue to be incredibly curious about everything that is around me. Understand what drives you, the values, the legacy, the style that you have. So understand yourself, reflect on who you are and what you are, because it will help you make the right decisions for you personally. So recognizing that I have a bit of a wanderlust. I want to see different things. But that's not in everybody. Recognizing that maybe you're a homebody and you don't really want to travel very much, except on holidays, that also is an important piece to understand about yourself if that's who you are. So, so understand what drives you and your, what your values are, what is important to you as a legacy that you want to leave behind. So for me, it comes around to you know people and science and the mining industry as a great industry as a foundation for economic independence for people and communities. If I go back, I would say hold your family close because at the end of the day, that is your constant. When everyone else is gone, they'll still be hanging around. And I would also say um, don't be afraid to grab the opportunity. And that's been, you know, I guess that's if you look at my moves to gaily kind of ship countries and pick kids up and move them, sometimes the best opportunities are the scariest ones. And you shouldn't necessarily avoid them because they help you grow and become a different person. So. There you go. Stay curious, understand what drives you, hold your family close and don't be afraid. Excellent. They're great, great words, Laura. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> to finish off with, I think, what's your most memorable or funniest story from the site? And, and you can have more than one, Laura. <laughs> you kind of give me a heads up that you wanted me to come up with a memorable or funny story. And so I, I ended up with two out of the many many funny stories that you can get out of this industry or any industry i guess i was the production manager up at a a catty in the far north of uh, canada for quite a while we had a massive snowstorm one weekend when i was duty manager so everyone got on the plane on thursday and this massive snowstorm arrived as kind of almost as the plane took off and we had um, all the ice road truckers trapped. They were all trying to get to a catty because they didn't want to go to Divik, which was the Rio site, because they would make them stay in their trucks. But at a catty, which was the BHP site, we would let them all get out and come inside and get warmed up and we'd feed them and stuff. So we had all these ice road truckers. We had about 40 ice road truckers that I had to find beds for 
And they were all running these little gambling dens all over the place because that's what they used to do. But we, we didn't allow gambling. So we used to have, we had the security out trying to track them down so that, cause to, to stop them from gambling. So then we had no planes able to come in or out. I had two guys decide that they were going to try and get, they were going to try and walk to their office, which they'd been told not to do. So I had two people that were lost in the snow. So I had gambling dens around the place. I had no planes coming out. I had two people that were lost in the snow. I had search parties out for. And then the water pipes all froze to bring water into the camp, which was all fully enclosed. So I'm sitting there having dinner as one of the techs gaily tells me, just after I've discovered we found these two guys and we were managing that he'd, where the water had gone out, he'd actually ended up, he'd been in the shower when the water went out. So he was covered in soap. All his hair was soaked up. And he'd used the toilet water in order to rinse off. <laughs> <laughs> and it's this guy. And everyone sat around the table, all eating dinner. And everyone just kind of like looks at him. It's like, what can you say? He's used the toilet water to wash. Because he said it was the only water I could find because none of the taps were working. I mean, and that was kind of like after that, we were, we were trapped for about six days. And when everybody came back to site when we spoke, they just said, that's it. We're never allowing you to be the duty manager ever again. Because everything that could have possibly gone wrong went wrong on that weekend no water no no planes so the other story which is the one that we were laughing about earlier on that i was reminding you of took me back to mount isa when i was a i was i was a mine geologist there i was tech services superintendent i can't remember now i know mount isa we had in order to improve the toilet facilities underground we got in portaloos so this was when we were attempting to probably partly due to my insistence upon us having the right kind of facilities for young women to be able to go to the washroom underground as well as the men we brought in all these portaloos and in order to have a portaloo you have to have you have like a tank that sits underneath that collects all the waste and that has to be changed out it used to have to go up in the cage no one wanted to travel with the waste that's right I remember it. <laughs> used to have its own special run in the cage in order to get it out because it was a bit smelly. And it used to get parked. It was parked in the maintenance area waiting for its turn to get trolleyed around and put onto the X41 cage. Except that at one occasion, somebody ran over the waste can, shall we call it. So we had sewerage basically flowing down. We, now we dealt with that piece of it. But what the funny part of it was, was when the production superintendent was determined to find out which loader operator had driven over the waste can without actually reporting it and had driven off without actually stopping to, to fix it all up. So he went around and smelt all of the tyres of the loaders trying to find out which loader operator it was that had reversed over the can before it got put into the cage. And I can just remember thinking, what sort of industry am I in when one of the most senior people in the mine is smelling all of the tires of the loaders trying to find out which which operator was the culprit? We never did find out, but I do know that the production superintendent did get an award at the at the uh, at the end of year <laughs> Christmas celebrations <laughs> for having been out sniffing all the tires. Hey. He was and still is a very diligent person, isn't he? <laughs> he is. <laughs> we both know. Now he's we even more exactly senior. Who we're talking about. <laughs> he's now he's more senior, so we have to watch <laughs> names because you may even get him onto resourceful stories from the site. <laughs> That's right. One day I'll need to do that. <laughs> 
Well, Laura, thanks for joining us today and for giving our listeners some insight into the world of a mining and resources industry executive. It's been great to have you here. So thanks very much. For those listening, if you'd like to speak to Laura, you're more than welcome to connect with her on LinkedIn and you'll see the information on our podcast series page. So thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Resourceful, stories from the site. We'll be back in a month with more tips and insight from our other industry leaders. We'd love to connect with you. You can find us on all the usual social channels and our website, resourcesunearthed.com.au. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite platform so you never miss an episode.